Hey there, welcome back. It's Clay coming at you with another video. Today, I wanna do a bit of a follow-up on a video I did about two videos ago, which was the one on can men and women be friends? So I received a number of questions about that video. And I was kind of purposely trying to keep the topic kind of narrow on that video, which was basically looking at sort of the societal programming of men as they grow up uh, versus women and kind of how that affects interpersonal relationships. So today I want to kind of dive into some of the surrounding issues to that. Monogamous relationships, uh, intimacy. So first things first, I got a couple audio questions that are kind of on the same topic. And I'm going to play those first and then after that we'll dive in to kind of discussing this topic a little bit. Hey Clay, you mentioned in a, in a different video your opinions about monogamy and, and how it is restraining and how you feel like it blocks intimacy in a way. At the time, I don't think you explored it very much. I would love to hear your thoughts on this more because in fact, in my life, I've been thinking about it a lot and kind of pondering the question over in my head, the nature of polyamorous people versus monogamous people and so on. And here's the second question. Hi, Clay. Quick comment to start. The idea that men and women can't be just friends feels very much like patriarchal BS. I'm not sure if I misunderstood what you said about it being inappropriate for heterosexual opposite sex friends to share emotional intimacy when one of those individuals is in a shaky relationship. It is so sad to imagine someone forgoing emotional intimacy with a friend to preserve a mediocre romantic relationship. Can you please clarify that a bit? So thank you for those questions. With Vash's question, I thought that was a really interesting thing that she picked up on there because it was sort of specifically something that I was trying not to talk about. Uh, that question of, do I think that monogamy and our sort of cultural definition of monogamous relationships, is that harming intimacy in our relationships as well as in our friendships? So we can dive into that more today. And the second question there was sort of asking for a clarification on something else I said in the Can Men and Women Be Friends video. And so first I'm going to kind of frame this whole topic a little bit and then I'll come back around and answer that question. So as a bit of a disclaimer, before I dive into this topic, I want to make it really clear that I think it's not your job, it's not my job to judge anybody else's relationship. It is not my job, it is not your job to criticize anybody else's definition. And so if you're going to comment on this video, I would really love if you would just remember that and respect other people's perspectives. So I think the biggest thing with this word monogamy is that I've come to realize that there really is no one definition for it. Every single person seems to have their own definition. It basically seems to me like it's a moving line in the sand where people kind of draw this line. This is monogamy and if you go outside of this it's now inappropriate or you're bordering on infidelity you know and if you go far enough it's basically an affair and it's sort of grounds for you know ending the relationship. So I'm going to jump into a number of definitions of monogamy starting with sort of the traditional historic version of what a monogamous relationship was. So as I understand it's only really the last century where men and women are expected to be mutually monogamous in their relationships. I guess historically speaking, if you go, you know, into the 1800s and back, women were the only ones that really were monogamous. It seems like men were able to have, you know, concubines and other relationships. The relationship itself wouldn't 
often break down because of that behavior. So even if you look into the Bible, you can see how the definition of what a relationship is has changed. You know, religious people are some of the like most strict people with what a relationship is supposed to look like according to God, right? But if you look into the Bible, like you know, King Solomon, I don't know how many hundreds of wives he had and concubines. Clearly, monogamy was not a priority back then when the king of Israel was essentially, you know, sleeping with whoever he wanted. So if you look at the last couple thousand years, it seems clear why monogamy was so, so important. It, it's not like today where people are having these relationships for love. There was all kinds of other reasons why people were getting married, you know, alliances. And lineage was important. Bloodlines were important. You know, if there's some king and he is going to pass on his throne to his son, he needs to make sure that that is his son, right? So monogamy is sort of part of that. If, if the queen was having sex with a whole bunch of people, he can no longer guarantee that that's even his son. And so I wonder if that's really the main reason why women were expected to be monogamous. So it seems like a pretty recent thing where people are now marrying for love alone. And in the past, a relationship didn't mean love like it does today. And I think half the problem with what monogamy means to the cultural definition of monogamy now is that you love this person, so you get you know, married. And then it's expected that there's all these feelings that will last. And if you lose those feelings, or let's say you have some kind of infidelity in that relationship, that the love is therefore destroyed. So sort of one clear example of how that word has changed is that in the past, monogamy meant one person sort of for your whole life. Nowadays, monogamy has almost changed a little bit. I'm talking about the cultural definition, not individual definitions. But the cultural definition, it's sort of like we can all be monogamous in multiple relationships. So one relationship at a time, that's almost what monogamy means in today's world, not one person for your whole life culturally, you're allowed to have a number of relationships and be monogamous in each of those relationships. People have these lofty ideas of what monogamy is, but yet, like in the United States, if you look at the stats, half of all marriages end in divorce. So what, like, what's going on here, right? It seems like we're doing something wrong or our definition of what a relationship is is flawed because if we had it right, would there really be so much failure of the system? So let's jump into the individual definitions of monogamy that I see and sort of the contradictions in these things. A lot of people have their one definition, but what I've come to realize is that it's really more like a spectrum. And so on one end, you have this very strict, almost religious definition of monogamy, which is one man, one woman, forever. You shouldn't have sex before marriage. You only have sex within the confines of marriage. And then you stay together no matter what until, you know, one person dies. So in the strictest form of monogamy, which seems to be sort of the religious monogamy, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from, is religion, which is ironic, like I said, because in the past, even in the religious texts, it doesn't really seem like... Uh, a lot of people really adhered to these principles that people adhere to today. But sort of in its strictest sense, you know, even l noticing attractiveness in somebody else, just to say that person is attractive, could be inappropriate. And it's no wonder, because if you actually look in the Bible, 
Um, it, you know, it says adultery is wrong, but it also says to even lust after another woman is the same as having adultery. So I think that's why a lot of Christians have this idea. It's really important, you know, to keep your eyes only towards your partner. As soon as you even, you know, what is lust, right? It's sort of recognizing attractiveness and almost desiring that. You've now committed adultery in your, in your mind. So as you slide a little bit down the spectrum, you might get to a point where it's okay to have friends that are the opposite sex or same sex if you're in a same sex relationship. But you've got to keep that under wraps, like you got to keep it casual, no deep intimacy type situations, right? From there, you might move down the spectrum where the line of what's inappropriate could be, you know, flirting, more like flirtatious behavior. That could be inappropriate and you're almost breaking the monogamous relationship with that kind of behavior. So from there, other people might define that inappropriate line in a monogamous relationship as having a deep friendship with a member of the opposite sex or same sex if you're in a same sex relationship. So from a cultural standpoint, I think we're getting into the majority here. And we even have this word called an emotional affair to kind of describe that situation. Whereas other people see that as completely harmless and it's, it's seen as, of course, you're going to have good friendships with other people. I think that I kind of fall into that area, to be honest. I am fine having friendships with people, and just because I have a friendship with somebody doesn't mean there's this attractiveness, doesn't mean that we are romantic, doesn't mean that we are physically or sexually involved. So moving down the spectrum even more, what if you get into issues like pornography? A lot of people think that pornography is a threat, a huge threat to a monogamous relationship, and if somebody is using pornography, that they are kind of going outside of that relationship and doing something wrong. Whereas other people might define, you know, what's appropriate levels of pornography. Maybe a certain amount is okay. They might say that heavy usage is a sign of something maybe going wrong in the relationship, but they might recognize that everybody has sexual impulses and maybe it's healthy to recognize other people as attractive and enjoy watching that. So I realize that a lot of people even will cringe that I've said that, that there are other people that actually think that's okay. It seems, especially in religious contexts, pornography is viewed as a relationship destroyer. And I grew up in a Christian environment, so I know exactly what that is. I have been had that preached at me my whole life, that pornography is going to destroy me if, I, you know, if it's something that I take an interest in. So from there, you might even, you know, get further. What about, you know, people that like to talk on cams with, like, cam models? So they might be naked or there might be masturbation, but it's, it's, a, it's a back and forth relationship where you're actually talking. I think a lot of people would be extremely threatened by that. But other people will look at that and go, well, it's, it's, this person, like, they might even live in a different country on the other side of the world. That, they don't have an intimate emotional connection, like that isn't a threat to my relationship that I have. That person can never possibly replace what we have. It's like real life relationship with deep emotional connection. So we're getting more to the end of that spectrum where a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable with that, but some people might not be, and that still might be okay within the confines of their definition of monogamy. 
So from there, you know, you might be slid halfway down this spectrum before you get to this idea of monogamish or consensual non-monogamy. And like the definition of monogamy, even this seems to have many definitions. And to be honest, when you really dive into this, and then you dive into the definition of polyamorous, to me, both these things seem to overlap on this spectrum. So when I say consensual non-monogamy, it seems like the key to that definition is you still have like a main partner. And although you might have other relationships, however you define those, the main partner is still the most important. It might be the person that you live with. You could actually be married or you could not be married. But you're still monogamous and you're committed to this person. But the boundaries of what you're allowed to do with other people change and are very personal to the relationship. So what does monogamish or consensual non-monogamy look like? Really, in its simplest form, it could just be you have a main partner and then Let's say you have really good friends on the side. You have deep connections that you kind of share yourself with. That could be, to be honest, one definition of it because in the strict version of monogamy, you're not really allowed to have these deep connections with the opposite sex or same sex in a same sex relationship. The point is to say even having deep emotional connections, having good friends, something that, something that I would define as a good friend is, could be called an emotional affair to a strict monogamy perspective. But at the sort of bottom level of a consensual non-monogamous relationship, it could just be that that is allowed within the confines of that relationship. So it seems like in our culture, we have this spectrum and it kind of illustrates the difference between what a friend is and what a romantic partner is. So you might have this spectrum that starts over here and it's like, you know, a casual friend, and it slides all the way up into the middle where it's just like a good friend. There seems to be this clear boundary of what a friend is. And then we have this massive jump to romantic partner. And so it seems like there's this spectrum in between friend and romantic partner that is rarely explored, I would say, by the majority of the population. And it seems like consensual non-monogamy starts to explore in that gap. Well, what does it mean if somebody is slightly better than a friend, according to what culturally is acceptable for a friendship? Let's say you lean more into a little bit of romance, let's say, or let's say it starts to be a little more physical. Let's say, you know, two people cuddle on a couch watching a movie. Most people would say that's more than friends and maybe that's inappropriate if you are also in a monogamous relationship. But in a consensual non-monogamous relationship, you know, that might be fine. And then on the flip side, you know, certain people might not even want to have those emotional connections. They might think that that's inappropriate and that purely physical connections are less of a threat to the relationship. So you might see people having like casual sex with other people or like hooking up with people. Or you might see things like threesomes where a, a couple has a third person into that relationship and who that person is and the boundaries of that person is completely defined by whatever they want. They might have emotional connection that might be a friend or you know, other people seem to not even want it to be a friend. They just want it to be this person they've never met before so it's just a physical thing so it doesn't threaten their emotional relationship. And so what I am saying here is there seems to be between friend and romantic relationship, there's a, any number of steps 
along the way. And the monogamish people are sort of exploring what that means to them. So at this point, I feel like we've already bled into the definition of polyamorous. It's interesting, there seems to be a large overlap between the definitions of monogamish and polyamorous. If you actually look up the definition of polyamorous, um, just like the dictionary definition, this is what you get. Characterized by or involved in the practice of engaging in multiple romantic and typically sexual relationships with the consent of all the people involved. So the interesting thing about that definition is it sort of sounds similar to the consensual non-monogamy definition. You might still have this main partner and you might engage in these other relationships. And it even says there that they might be sexual or they might not be. However, it seems to me where the definition of polyamorous leaves monogamish in the distance is when you get to this situation where you don't really have one main partner anymore. You might have two main partners. So I've actually heard of people that, you know, one woman that I know of, she has two boyfriends and they kind of live in this, basically three of them in this relationship in a house. So they all live together. There is no main partner. So other definitions might be you live alone and you have two, three, four other people. And Maybe two of them are really good, really close. Maybe two of these other people are less. They're more just physical. The point is, is that you can kind of define that however you want. So I want to make it clear that the point of me saying all this and sort of explaining what I see the various options here as, the point isn't to get you to agree or disagree with any of these. The point is to make you realize that there's lots of definitions of monogamy. And that although you might feel like your definition makes sense for you, there are lots of other people out there that have different definitions. And that's okay. It's not your job or my job to judge those people. So I'm just gonna jump into a few stats. I actually read a couple studies that suggested some pretty interesting results. So basically what it seems like from the data is that polyamorous people, polyamorous relationships might report a higher level of happiness in life, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So what they did here was they found 4,000 polyamorous people, and then they gave them this survey that asked them a number of questions. And then they compared that to the general social survey, which is the survey they give to a large population in the United States. So what they're doing is comparing sort of the general feelings and thoughts of these polyamorous couples, 4,000 people, compared to sort of the general population. So one of the questions was, is it better to be in a bad marriage than no marriage? So polyamorous people like strongly opposed that. They think it's better to be in no marriage than a bad marriage. But the general population was pretty much even on yes or no. So, you know, like half the people in the general population are saying, yeah, it's better to be in a bad marriage than no marriage at all. I mean, I think that's surprising. For me, I don't wanna be in a bad marriage. I think it's unhealthy. I think it drags you down. I don't think you can be the best version of yourself if you're stuck in this toxic relationship. So here's some other interesting stats. In the general survey, 60% of monogamous individuals said they were unhappy with their marriage. Polyamorous people on average said they were very happy with life. Monogamous people said they were pretty happy with life. So I realized that you know, that's kind of vague, but in general, the point is that polyamorous people are 
sort of reporting a general higher level of happiness. So polyamorous people also rated their personal health higher than the general population. Polyamorous people were twice as likely to have a bachelor's degree or higher. So that's interesting that people who are polyamorous are more educated. So this Harvard study that I read says that more than money or fame, relationships, good relationships are what make people happy, most of all. And what they found was that since non-monogamy encourages closer relationships in general with more people, in general, these people are less lonely. Um, there's less stress to stay in a bad relationship where you're kind of almost locked in a cage with somebody that maybe isn't you know, giving you what you need emotionally. That's why they're kind of wondering if that's why polyamorous people are, are generally happier in their relationships. So I have to wonder if at the root of this strict monogamy definition, people seem to think that their partner, their spouse, is supposed to kind of be their everything. It's like they want that one person to be their best friend, their sole emotional support. They, they want to be wildly attracted to that person. They want to have similar interests and similar values. Basically, going back to the five pillars of relationship, you've got these five things. And it's sort of like, I only got one chance at this. I only got one person that I can be with. I can't get these things out of other people. So I got to get all these things in one person. And I can't help but wonder if that, all by itself, is harming relationships. Like imagine if you were going to buy a car and you get one chance at it. This is the one car that you're supposed to buy and have for the rest of your life. And you know, a pretty good car comes along. Maybe, maybe house shopping is better. Like a pretty good house comes along. It's not your perfect house, but you know, it's pretty good. And you know if you don't take this house, it's gonna go away and then you gotta wait and see what comes up later, right? So there's this, there's this tremendous amounts of stress to be like, okay, well this person's a three out of five. We get along pretty good. Um, I don't wanna break up, but is this the one person that's gonna give me everything I need? So let me give you a bit of a personal story here. A couple years before my marriage sort of ended, I started going to a counselor. And a lot of this stuff was the general theme of our discussions. So it's something I've been thinking about for a while. And that's kind of when I kind of invented this concept of the five pillars of relationship. And I had kind of determined that when I got married, I might have had basically three out of five. I didn't have a lot of experience with relationships when I got married. It was really my first real girlfriend. And we got married very young, both sort of strong religious upbringings where, you know, you're expected to not have sex before marriage. And so, you know, that was me. I didn't, I didn't have sex until I was married. This relationship that I got into, I was very inexperienced and quite naive, really. Got married when I was just turned 23. So from my best guess, I feel like we had three out of five. We had similar values, um, physical attraction, and shared interests. But the intellectual stimulation, intellectual conversation was not there, and the emotional intimacy side of things wasn't there. 
So as time went on though, and we had kids, and I started to change my beliefs. So the shared values was all the religious beliefs we'd kind of been indoctrinated with. And I kind of started to change my beliefs and grow in certain ways. We kind of lost that pillar. The shared values went out the window eventually. It took a while, but it just slowly eroded. And then after we had kids, that kind of ruined a lot of our ability to do things together. Like we, we really liked adventurous type things. We would um, actually, she was a professional snowboarder in her younger days. So she was competing in half pipe and slope style. And so we spent a lot of time skiing, snowboarding. We would go on kite surfing trips and we'd drive around and do all this fun stuff. So the kids kind of changed that, right? And all of a sudden we couldn't do that stuff as much anymore. And our interests sort of started to split and all of a sudden I was doing all my interests by myself. She sort of seems to be doing her interests by herself. So that was one of the pillars, shared interests. All of a sudden we were down to like one out of five, which might just be physical attraction. And you know, as time goes on, maybe you've been married for 15 years, when you don't have any of those other things, maybe the physical attraction starts to wear off a bit. And all of a sudden you're in this place where you got like half out of five, 0 0.5 out of five, or maybe even zero to five, if, if you call it that. And so I'm sitting in this counselor's office talking about a lot of these things. And I was, I was in a bad place. I was basically going through an existential crisis at that time. I was extremely depressed. I was bordering suicidal at various times. I was really confused. I was, I was having trouble trusting myself. Um, I didn't know whether to trust. There was, there was massive cognitive dissonance inside of me, which is basically your values might be one thing, but you're living out something else and you feel bad. So what she had suggested was that I needed to find some friends quickly. <laughs> and I needed to breathe into those relationships to get some of the things that I needed that I wasn't getting out of my main relationship. And so this is where sort of the awkwardness comes in, right? So I did do that. I, one of my fairly good friends was a female. It's kind of weird what happened because I was purposely trying to build this relationship because I thought it would strengthen my marriage. I thought if I can get this intellectual discussions and the, the, the ideas and the philosophical kind of conversation with somebody else and also build some emotional intimacy and have emotional support, like real emotional support, because I wasn't getting that in my marriage at all, maybe that would help and now I can come back to my marriage and almost fix things, right? So given all that, let's come back to this question of can monogamy limit intimacy? I would say if you're stuck in a bad relationship, a strict monogamous relationship, and you don't have intimacy in that relationship, like let's say you're a highly emotionally intelligent person. So the last video I did was on emotional intelligence and you're stuck with somebody that has very low emotional intelligence. And even if they wanted to open up, it doesn't even seem like they can. You're emotionally unfulfilled in this relationship. And if your definition of monogamy is super strict and that you're not allowed to go outside the marriage to get that, then I would say definitely monogamy, it locks you in that cage and now limits your ability to get intimacy other, other places. So I, you know, I, I can't help but wonder with 
this strict definition of monogamy if it's sort of destined to, f to fail because it creates this either-or scenario. You're kind of forced now to go, okay, well, I'm not getting this in this relationship, so I have a choice now to live in this unfulfilled state, in this bad relationship, but it's stable. So it's this stability versus happiness debate that you kind of go into. Well, this is stable. We have kids, almost like very good roommates, right? So we had that. But then on the romantic side of things, to me, it was almost romantically devoid. If you're forced to choose that over the potential of finding something better or finding something that's more fulfilling in an emotional way or an intellectual way or a values way, the problem with monogamy is now you have to let this whole thing go that might actually be quite stable. So it was actually Alan Watts. I listened to him quite a bit a couple years ago. He's, he's dead now, but he's got some great lectures. They've, they've sort of preserved a lot of his lectures. He was really active in the maybe the 60s and the 70s. And he was with the first one. I think I'm going to do a whole video kind of on Alan Watts, but he was the first one that kind of got this idea in my head, like what a shame it is that culture forces you to basically get rid of this stable relationship that you might have kids in. It might be a purely functional relationship in order to seek out real love or romance or emotional intimacy. Is it not possible that you could have both those things? So essentially that is what I did in my relationship. I started seeking out deep levels of emotional intimacy with other people and it got to the point where I was, I was like, this is fine, this is great. And then on the other hand, I had these other relationships and none of them were what I would call romantic relationships, but I think they were already to the point of making a lot of other people uncomfortable. So this, this word started getting thrown around by certain people, emotional affair. And I'm like, what, I'm not having an emotional affair. Like, what are you talking about? I have a friend and it's basically encouraged by my counselor and even my wife at the time, she liked this idea that I was, because I actually talked about this with her. I'm like, I'm gonna go and try to seek some of this stuff in other people. And she's like, I think at the time she was so overwhelmed with me that she was like, great. I mean, she, she's overwhelmed by my constant ideas and thoughts and my attempts at communication. So she was like, this sounds great. Yeah, go do that. So she gave me full permission to go do this. And it wasn't meant to be a physical or sexual thing. And it wasn't. It never was that. But the problem was, is it still was this strict version of monogamy. So in the end, I was sort of forced to make this choice. Do I want to stay in this relationship that is stable, but might be zero or one out of five pillars on my relationship scale? It's, it's not a good relationship. It could be a business relationship. You know, we have kids together. Or I can leave and try to find, you know, that relationship that I really want and really need. So I think that's the dilemma that a lot of people are in. It's choosing stability over happiness. And I, I have to wonder if some of these other definitions, consensual non-monogamy or polyamorous, if it's sort of an answer to that question that you can have stability and happiness all in one. Because when I left my marriage, it was like an atomic bomb went off in my life. The stability was completely gone. And 
I could go into more about a lot of the nonsense and toxic behavior and just the ridiculous things that happened after that. I think a lot of that comes back to her ownership of me and her feeling that her definition of monogamy and what that means overrides mine. She had all of religion on her side and culture and there was a lot of shame that came at me that it's sort of like, you made a commitment. What are you doing, you piece of shit, right? But here I was close to death and I'm not even exaggerating. Um, in fact, it got right afterwards when all that shame started. It was the closest to killing myself that I'd ever been. Um, and I hope that doesn't trigger anybody, but I was actually to the point where I was sitting on top of like 200 foot cliffs, contemplating what it would be like to throw myself off. I was sitting up there thinking about it. So from doing a little more research in this the last few days, it seems that a lot of researchers think that monogamy is not a natural thing. And even a lot of the traditional reasons of why monogamy is the best method for humans, you know, they, they look at certain animals. They'd be like, oh, look at these birds. These birds mate for life. And humans are also like that. Humans should mate for life. A lot of the birds that we think are monogamous or other animals, it turns out they're actually cheating on each other constantly. And there's a lot of infidelity in these supposedly monogamous birds. So I thought that was funny and that a lot of people use that as a reason. Well, look at these animals. Even animals are monogamous, right? So now that I am out of what I would deem an unhealthy relationship, and at this point, I am in what I would call a very fulfilling relationship, where if I actually look at the five pillars, I would say we have five out of five, which I think is a very hard thing to get, to be honest. But at this point, it's interesting how my, how my emotional state and my perspective has changed. I don't feel emotionally starved anymore. I mean, this, this can't just be because of my relationship. Um, I think I've done a lot of other self-work and self-growth, but the point is, is that I don't feel the same need that I used to to go find deep emotional intimacy with other people because I have a high level of emotional intimacy in my relationship currently. And, you know, I'm like, well, I feel pretty good about that. And I still want to have friends. But it's not the same, like, it was almost like a starvation feeling before. Like, I was, I was starving. So, you know, I'm not saying this for sure, but I wonder if a lot of the reasons why people might want a consensually non-monogamous relationship is because they're not getting what they need out of that main relationship. So now they have to go get it elsewhere. Like, you know, you hear of some couples that never have sex. And what if you're like a sexual person and you're, you're with somebody that just doesn't want to have sex? Now you're kind of in this awkward place where you stay in this relationship and you kind of have to be almost celibate. <laughs> so it's almost like you're forced to be somewhat celibate or at least partially celibate. But if you leave the relationship now, you can go find somebody else that wants to have as much sex as you do. Um, it's almost like if you were fulfilled, then you wouldn't even need to do that in the first place. So part of me wonders if the, I, probably not all of it, but a lot of why people want consensually non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships is they can't get what they need out of a single person. And I think if you come to the conclusion that that's the case, 
that maybe, maybe I can get what I need out of two people. And so what I find a little fascinating about polyamorous relationships, and another thing that I was kind of reading about, is that the level of communication to actually maintain these relationships is quite high. You need to have excellent communication from what I've read. So I've never been in a polyamorous relationship. But the thing is, is that you have to be really clear about what your boundaries are. Where is that line in the sand for you of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate? Most, say you're, you have a main partner and you have some kind of open relationship. What are both people comfortable with if you go have other relationships, whether that's friendships or even bordering into more than friends, right? Communication has to be key. From all the reading I've done about relationships, I think, I've, I've said this before, is that relationships are communication. Without communication, you don't have a relationship. So it's kind of interesting to me in a way that these consensually non-monogamous relationships or polyamorous relationships encourage a high level of communication. And another thing from the sounds of it is they only work if your main relationship is strong. Because if you're on bad terms, that's not gonna work, right? And it's sort of what happened with me when I was in my marriage. We were on bad terms, and then I started forming this other deep emotional connection. And there was no affair, although some people now have told me they call that an emotional affair. But to me, it's just a definition of a good friend. But through that process, I started to see what was possible out of another relationship. And my initial um, drive to do this was to build my marriage, to take the pressure off her. But in the process, all it did was show me what a real relationship might look like. And it just started to really show me that how bad this one was. So why do I think that most people would never consider anything except these strict monogamous relationships? Well, I think for one is religion. Most people, they don't come up with their own values. They usually just adopt them from some external source. Um, so it's very clear in religious contexts that what is expected out of a relationship. But I think the other thing is that the traditional def definition of monogamy, it encourages jealousy in relationships and it encourages insecurities. So let's say um, one person in a relationship, you know, takes a glance at another attractive person. What if they even say, wow, that person's attractive? If the other partner was extremely secure in themselves and confident, and they understood the relationship and they had a high level of communication between the two of them, and they understood that there was this deep connection and this, they loved each other, then why would that threaten that relationship? I, I feel like that wouldn't be a threat. However, if that one partner was deeply insecure, then I think it's going to trigger something. It's going to be like, oh, he thinks that person's attractive. That means he thinks that I'm ugly. And then it kind of can go into this spiral of jealousy. And it creates this jealousy. But it seems to be one of the one places in our society where it is extremely accepted, to the point where it's culturally accepted jealousy. It's almost past culturally accepted to the point where it's expected. In order to be a good spouse, a good partner, you should be jealous. I think that is quite fascinating. And I have to ask the question, what would happen if in normal monogamous relationships we removed all jealousy and we were both secure, confident people? 
and we had good enough to communication to understand where that relationship stood. So now when somebody else says, that person's attractive, it's like, wow, yeah, I agree, that person is attractive, right? It's almost like that can strengthen the relationship rather than tear it apart. I think that a lot of people, especially in religious settings, because religious settings, it's almost like it's a bad thing to even admit that you might have these thoughts for other people, right? Because all of a sudden, even having that thought, that means you're lusting. That means you've already committed adultery in your mind, and that is shameful. You better keep that to yourself. Which, in a way, seems to really just drive wedges in the communication in a relationship. If you have things that you can't talk about because you don't want to admit it, because what does that mean? Culture tells you that love means a relationship. And once you're in that relationship, what does that mean? What does love mean? It means that you only have eyes for this person. You will never look elsewhere. You, you will have all your needs met in this one person. So to admit that somebody else is attractive, does that mean you're not in love? I bet a lot of people would wonder that. And so Traditionally speaking, I'm a photographer and I enjoy taking pictures of people. And I often gravitate towards people that just have look interesting. And I think I also enjoy photography that pushes boundaries a little bit, to be honest. And sometimes people aren't wearing many clothes. But there's something about it that brings comfort to me. And when I was married, this was a, a hot button topic. Um, my wife didn't like it, and a lot of her friends didn't like it, and they would always talk about it together, and then sometimes people would bring it up with me, and her parents, they almost had like a bit of an intervention once where her family basically told me they didn't like what I was doing. And if you want to see the kind of pictures that I take, you can go find me on Instagram. But the point was that I, I never caved to that issue, and for me it sort of highlights their definition of monogamy was one thing. And here I was on the other side where I'm like, of course I can take pictures of people. I'm not having sex with them. I don't even, I'm not even friends with most of these people. They're just random models. We meet up for an hour. There's a bunch of people on set. There's literally no sexiness going on. To me and my definition of monogamy, that doesn't threaten it. But to many people it does. And that's kind of my journey through this. I've realized that there's all these different definitions of monogamy. But I've also started to wonder if the strict definitions of monogamy are built upon insecurity. And if you got rid of that insecurity, would that relationship change naturally? So circling her back around now to the, the second question there. Is it sad to limit your friendships to protect a weak relationship? I would say, yes, it is. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to have to limit my relationships and actually sort of cut them off, be like, no, no, this is approaching um, dangerous ground because me and my main relationship, we have this weak level of emotional intimacy, so I don't want to surpass that with anybody else. Otherwise, maybe I'm going into the, into the boundaries of maybe an emotional affair. Unless this person is the type of person who has some self-reflection and enjoys growth, then perhaps you can build that relationship back, especially if it's something that you had at one point. Let's say you had this fulfilling relationship at one point, and then maybe you had kids, and it's kind of fallen apart. I would say that's a hopeful situation, because that means maybe you can build it back. But let's say you realize that you've never had 
a great connection. Or let's just say that you're starting to realize you're a bit of a people pleaser, which is the same thing as being a little bit codependent. What if you're realizing your codependent tendencies and now you realize you see that you've married a narcissist? And this person has always been a narcissist. They're a narcissist and they, they're likely to never change. And you've spent years trying. And now they're jealous of all your relationships. I think for me, I would rather, I'm like the polyamorous people in the, in the study. I would rather take no relationship over a bad relationship. It's just too much stress. There's things that I want to do in my life. Uh, there's things I want to accomplish. And I've noticed that bad relationships are just such an emotional drain for me that it, it literally sends me into depression. And I don't want that. I have a number of unanswered questions here. But my main question is this. Is it possible to have a very strong main relationship while also having other relationships that might even include physical or sexual relationships? If you have a bulletproof relationship and you both agree on what these boundaries are and you stay within those boundaries, whatever those boundaries are, whatever the definition is, I have to think it's possible. Some people might not be able to handle that. And I think that's okay. And people that can handle it, I think that's okay too. I really do believe that people should do whatever they want to do. And I don't think it's right to say that one thing is better than another, especially when the cultural definition, which is this sort of strict monogamy, ends in failure at least 50% of the time and then of the people that are in monogamous relationships, 60% of them report being you know, in a bad relationship. Monogamy, to me, just from looking at the stats, doesn't really have a lot going for it. There's something wrong here. I think that's clear. Something massively wrong with how society and culture views relationships. Because monogamy, what does that even mean? I've come to realize that it essentially means nothing. There are so many definitions for that word that the word is almost meaningless. Same with polyamorous. Although it does suggest a general idea specifically and what the specifics are of that, it doesn't really define that. And it's sort of one observation I've had about life. And it's something that I'm doing more and more. In a lot of my discussions with people, the first thing I try to do is define the word. And I, I think in a lot of these videos, what am I doing half the time? I feel like I'm defining what words are and the possible explanations for words. Because you can't really have a discussion with somebody until you come to a common definition of the language that you are using. It's sort of like even the words straight and gay. Even those two words don't mean enough. So maybe you've seen the Kinsey scale before. And that basically is a spectrum. So I'm realizing that a lot of words are arbitrary points on spectrums and that maybe we need to start looking at things more like a spectrum rather than these hard polar opposites like straight and gay. So the Kinsey scale basically puts, you know, purely heterosexual on one side and like purely gay on the other side. And it's a, a level of six levels from zero to six. And so you could be a one which means you're mostly heterosexual, but you know, a, a hint of maybe attraction to the same sex. And then you could come up all the way to the middle of the scale, and then you're essentially like equal, you're bisexual. 
You like both. You like human beings in general. I don't think that anybody should call anybody else heterosexual. I don't think that you should call anybody else gay unless they have specifically defined themselves as that. And even if they have, you never really know if somebody is picking one of these words out of societal pressure, out of some kind of pressure to fit in with some kind of group, or just out of the the desire to have an identity. I think a lot of people, they want an identity so bad that they pick these things and then they try to make themselves into those things. I think in this, the case of heterosexual people, 100% heterosexual people, I would suspect that more often than not, those people aren't a zero out of six on the scale. They could be a one, two, three. I mean, you might have people in religious settings that are you know, secretly bisexual or secretly just full-on gay. But they're pretending to be heterosexual. So I think that's why it is wrong to accuse somebody of their sexuality. So anyways, thanks for checking out the video. I think it was a long one, but hopefully it was useful and hopefully clarified a few issues. If you disagree with any of this or you agree or have your own ideas, feel free to leave a comment or uh, send me an audio question. Anyway, guys. Thanks, and I hope you have a great day.